We turn to the gospel as recorded by Luke. Luke chapter 15. Our text runs from verses 11 through 24. Begin to read at verse 1. Then drew, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them. Now go to verse 11. Verse 11. He spake this parable unto them, saying, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there rose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck, and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him, and he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, and that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. A familiar phrase, isn't it? Lost and found. A familiar phrase from a beloved parable, some say the most beloved, perhaps, but why? Filled with sinners, filled with the ugliness of sin, filled with the power of sin, filled with the deceitfulness of sin. You see it in the lack of gratitude in the prodigal son and how he wasted his father's living, demanding it in a very high-handed manner. You see it in the elder son 
who of course we say was self-righteous, but very judgmental of others as well. Then all of its ugliness and yet a beloved parable. Why? Because of the father in the parable, is it not true? And who that father represents and what Christ in talking about this father reveals to us concerning his father as our father one willing to receive sinners and embrace them which raises the question beloved how interested are you how interested am I in the embrace of God ever think of that how interested are we in the embrace of God do we wait for that as watchmen wait for morning light is it of paramount importance to us if it is then we better hear about repentance because this son was embraced as he came in the way of repentance he was not embraced because of repentance he was embraced as his son but only in the way of repentance would he experience that embrace and Christ underscores that in this parable as well but a beloved parable because of that father and who that father is and because of who that father is and how he works and in the end knows how to bring us back to himself sin does not have the final word there is hope for the greatest of sinners that's the gospel and that's what Christ brings home in this parable especially as you consider to whom he tells it and who's in who hearing he recites it when to call it the education of the prodigal son prodigal son had some learning to do beloved he had to learn concerning the seriousness of sin he had to learn concerning sins deception he had to learn the nature of true repentance and then be reminded again of his father's abiding love which in the end when all is said and done is the only thing that makes life worth living because if you know nothing of the father's love there is something else that will embrace you it's death and in the end everlasting condemnation the importance of knowing the father and his love and being reassured that it abides a certain man had two sons that reminds us of the occasion for the parable For there drew nigh unto him two groups, the, public, the publicans and sinners, for to hear him, represented, of course, by that younger son, but also Pharisees and scribes came near, represented, of course, by that elder son and brother. Two groups of people, 
the one group drawing nigh in the knowledge of their need, with the sense of their need, bearing the burden of their guilt, and seeking to hear good words that would reassure them that not all was lost when it came to salvation and, and God. And the other group came to observe and to criticize. That's a wonderful reason for coming to hear Jesus preach, huh? Come to church to hear and criticize. Not why we're in church, I trust. We're in church to hear Christ speak, to hear the gospel in our need. But those scribes and Pharisees despised, of course, the publicans and the sinners. They had no interest in their well-being. They would just assume they all perished. But the great object of their disgust wasn't the scribes and Pharisees. That was actually Jesus, of course. That's why they were there. Because this Jesus of Nazareth disgusted them, and they despised him so. And they, of course, were convinced that he could not be the Messiah, and he could not and certainly be what some were saying as well, this is the Son of God. How can he possibly be the promised Messiah and the Son of God, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Of these people, publicans and sinners, God would have no approval. You know that as well as I. He can't approve of these publicans and sinners. And Jesus eats with them, and apparently he approves of them. Out. Why else would he eat with them? If he approves of them, he can't possibly be the Messiah and the Son of God. Certainly, Jehovah God would have no interest, would he, in the salvation of such publicans and sinners? Christ tells this parable, beloved, to make plain just how wrong, errant they were concerning their assessment of Jehovah God and in whose Salvation, he had interest. Parable, this parable Christ is making plain to the scribes and Pharisees how foreign their hearts were in comparison with the heart of his father and of himself. This father of the parable, of course, represents Jehovah God as the God of compassion who is willing to receive returning prodigals and sinners, and even to work the return of prodigals and sinners, and to do that by bringing to them his word, the gospel word. And in this parable, Christ is making plain to the publics and sinners that his willingness, his willingness to eat and drink with these publicans and sinners to bring them the word didn't disprove he was the Messiah, but demonstrated indeed that he was the Messiah and the true reflection of Jehovah God. Loved a certain man had two sons, said the younger, representing the publicans and sinners, and the elder, representing the scribes and the Pharisees. And we can say two distinct groups, but from a certain point of view, these two groups, beloved, have to be categorized together as well. They're all Jews. There's not a man amongst them that's not, not circumcised. Even the women came 
and had within them the blood of Abraham, you know, they're all the sons and daughters of Abraham. They all belong to the same congregation, same denomination. Went to the same temple when they went to the temple. They were raised in the sphere of the covenant. Heard the same law read. Even participated from an outward point of view in what we call the privileges of the covenant. They're related by blood, you know. Not Jews and Gentiles. All of the blood of Abraham. Categorized them together from a certain point of view. At the same time, they must be distinguished. Because you understand that one of the groups lacked something that is essential. One group, beloved, was devoid of grace. How do we know that that one group was devoid of grace? They were devoid of love. They had no love for others other than themselves and certain who agreed with them, very selective in whom they might love, like, have kindness towards. As the rest, they were despised, belittled, demeaned. Let them perish. I don't have a good word for them. That's not love. And that reveals one doesn't know grace. Because if you've been graced, you say, who am I? I'm a damn worthy sinner who was saved and renewed. How am I better and superior to the rest of them if I can be saved? If God so wills, he can save that one too. And if he has shown me such kindness, who am I not to show kindness to others and consideration? No love. It's plain from the parable, isn't it? Indicating no work of grace. The evidence of grace, beloved, is this matter of love that esteems other better than self and will even seek their salvation and bring good words. And so, Christ Jesus And so you have, beloved, this parable. But now, to this point, to some extent, we've been focusing on the scribes and Pharisees. The sermon has to now turn to that of the prodigal. Don't forget, it's with those represented by the prodigal that the parable parable begins. He doesn't begin with the elder brother. He begins with the younger brother representing the publicans and the sinners. And you understand, beloved, that he's making very plain that they too must be addressed by the word. And when Christ tells this parable, he in no way excuses the conduct and behavior of that wayward, worldly prodigal. He is not minimizing the sin of that prodigal, which represents the sins of the publicans and the sinners as well. To understand that the only sin that is Condemned by God is not simply if you are of a judgmental nature. And you might speak harshly of others. As long as I'm not of a judgmental nature and I don't speak harshly of others and tolerate everyone else, I must be a Christian. And because I'm not of a judgmental nature and pretty much will tolerate the conduct of everybody else, I may too live as I please, right? I don't judge. I don't rebuke. I don't reprove. I must be a Christian as I live 
as a publican and sinner? I don't think so. And Christ does not say so either. Beloved, when he ate and drank with the publicans and sinners, he didn't do this to approve of them. Scribes and Pharisees says he's eating with them, must be approves of them. No, that's not why he ate with them, to approve of them. He ate with them to bring them the word, to reprove them, to rebuke them, as he does in this parable, to call them to repentance. Because in this, the scribes and Pharisees were corrupt. They were guilty of serious sin. A sinner, you know, is a harlot. Makes her living as a prostitute. Selling her body to the highest bidder, if you will. At the same time, understand something about most of these harlots in Christ's day. They were women who had been divorced. Maybe by some of these very scribes and Pharisees who stood in the group because she didn't meet my standard or whatever, and very simple. Get a bill of divorcement, go to the priest, have it scribbled. Here it is, you're out in the street. And now where was the woman at? If a family would not even receive her again. Damaged goods. There's a reason why in the scriptures Christ is so vehemently condemnatory of Divorce, the putting away, and then even the remarriage of those who are divorced of, a, of another. And consider then the one who has just been callously, cruelly set aside. Nonetheless, are they turned with sin? Christ did not approve. You know the instance. woman brought in adultery. Christ not only says, neither do I condemn thee, but what else does he say? Now go thy way and sin no more. Leave this way. Here too. And with the tax collectors too who were known for cheating and taking more than they were really required to but Rome didn't mind as long as her portion of the taxes was gathered. You may take excess if you will and we'll stand behind you and the Jews knew that. So they also were guilty of, of sin and taking care of others. And Christ goes to them, just like he went to Zacchaeus, a call to repentance. So beloved with this prodigal, and Christ, as I said, is not telling this parable to somehow justify the life of the publicans and the sinners, but he goes to them to call them to repentance, that they may know forgiveness, but also to learn the, the ways of godliness again. You know, what that prodigal said due to his own foolishness and sin is true. When he comes to himself, he says that I am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's what he says in verse 19. He's not exaggerating. That's exactly the truth. What he had done to his father and how he had used his father's goods and how he had lived for a new, who knows long, how long a time in that far country, indeed, meaning he had forfeited all right to be called a son, to have any part in the inheritance, simply to be blocked at the door and have the father say, I don't know who you are, stranger, away. That's what he could rightfully, that could, that could have rightfully befallen him. The father was in every way just if he had said so. That's the truth, beloved, concerning how he dealt with his father's good and how he dealt with his father. He asks for his goods and then goes out and spends it and turns his back, you see, on his father and his household. And you understand the responsibility for the sin of this man is completely his own. It's not the, not the father's. The father is, blame, is blameless in all of this. You have a father here who is, you might say, a good man and a generous man. So, so generous that this son says, concerning my, my father's hired servants, they have bread enough and to spare. 
Most, you know, just gave their hired servants enough to live, not anything excess. But this man not only gave servants of his enough to live, but even in excess. He was generous. You think he was generous just with his servants and not with his sons? They had, this man had everything he wanted in his own home. A God-fearing father, one who kept God's commandments and confessed Jehovah God and treated his servants with a liberality and his sons also with a kind benevolence. And on such a father, this young man turns his back and rebels. He treats his father with disdain. Give me my inheritance. The son is saying, as it were, you're not dead yet. You're living too long, old man. If you would die, I'd have my inheritance, but you keep living, so I'm not going to wait any longer. Just give me what would be rightfully mine. And turning his back on this father of his who has shown him only kindness and, and love, he goes into this far country. Insight into sin, huh? Question is, why does he want to leave father's house? Because there's too many restrictions in his father's house. Too many rules and regulations. Too many laws. This young man knew he had the appetites for all that excess, all that harlotry, all that was immoral, and he knew it would never go in his father's house. Not as long as he was living in his father's house, that would not be approved. There would be consequences. There would be punishments. And he wasn't interested in the restrictions of his father's house and the disapproval of his, his father. So I'm going my way where I can live to my heart's content and do what I want as I will. In the essence of sin, is it not? Why did Adam and Eve turn their backs on God and all the blessings they had in the in the garden. Well, one thing is withdraw with one thing is withholding from us, and we have an appetite for that. And if we have to weigh between God's fellowship and approval and uh, something whatever that satisfies my appetite, be it just temporarily, I'll choose to satisfy my appetite even though it might cost me the fellowship of Jehovah God. That's the enormity of sin. If I may use the word apple, fellowship of God is not worth an apple. I know it wasn't probably an apple, but you know what I mean. Sin, appetites, even though it stands between us and God's fellowship. How foolish, but how serious. And there is many... Uh, person, you know, who looks for churches. They want to be members of a church, but not too many rules and regulations starting on the Lord's Day. Not too many restrictions. We want to live as we please. We want to avoid condemnation. We want some salvation, but not if it puts too many restrictions upon us how we are, are to live and, and to walk. But the Father's house, beloved, has those rules and regulations having to do with godliness, what was approved of and what was disapproved of, and this young man found living in his father's house was too stifling. And so he turns his back as if to say, who is my father to tell me how to live? When we walk in sin, that's what we're saying, you know. Who is God to tell me how I have to live? He has no right to tell me how I live as I please. And so one walks in sin and consequences follow and fellowship, beloved, it's broken. And so with this prodigal who goes into this far country because he wants to serve himself and live for himself. And he heads for that broad way, beloved, that leadeth to destruction. And if left to himself to the end of his life, he would have tasted that 
death and destruction as well. And he all but experienced it, beloved, except he was brought to his senses and came to see the deceitfulness of sin brought to repentance, which sets forth, which is which is, is there when one sees the deceitfulness of sin. And Christ Jesus underscores the vital importance of repentance, its necessity, if you will, by laying before us in graphic detail the consequences of pursuing sin, the horror of pursuing sin, and where it leaves one when all is said and done. You know where it left him in the end, destitute and alone. But that's not where it began. The broad way that leads to destruction doesn't begin with being destitute and in despair and alone. It begins with what is described here as riotous living. He wasted his substance with riotous living. Notice, wasted. That's where we get the word prodigal. Prodigal means to spend, to waste, and to squander. That's what the prodigal is. He spends and he wastes and he squanders. And he enjoys riotous living. When we hear the word riot, we might think of somebody throwing a, throwing a brick through a window. But this is the word used in the English as when we might talk to our young people and ask if they had a good time at some gathering. They said, oh, we had a riot. We had an enjoyable time. Whatever was allowed in that gathering, they, they did it all. They tried this ride and that ride, and we had a, they say a blast sometimes, but a, a riot. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. That's what you have here, a riot. And he spent his living prodigiously, and my, the friends who gathered when he said, it's on me, it's all on me, here it is, and they helped him waste and spend his living. The Broadway, that's how it begins, with its glitter and its satisfying this pleasure and satisfying that passion, and one saying, why did I wait so long? Isn't this just Wonderful. Eat, drink, use the word fornicate, and enjoy myself. And don't understand, they're not on a freeway. They're on a toll road. And every mile of that road you're going to pay for, whether you know it or not, may not be right at the moment, but it will come due, beloved. It will come due. Sometimes in this life, often in this life, with, with drink and, and drugs and prom promiscuity and all the, the rest. You know the, the diseases that they, they talk about, the wasting of the, of the liver and AIDS. What do you think that is? Judgment of God on promiscuity, of course, of a very sinful sort. From that point of view, God is not mocked. They're paying a price. They're on the tollway. Call it the Broadway, but they are on a tollway. Now there may be those who spend the whole life and they really don't suffer in this life the full consequences of their wickedness, of their sinfulness. They did a lot of drinking, but their liver withstands it and they don't catch a sexual disease and they die with money in the, the bank. You think they're not going to pay for it? On the other side of the pale? Oh yes, beloved. There will be a payment. Payment due. The wages of sin is death. Even the Greeks, the, the, the barbarians knew that from a certain point of view. In the Greek mythology, they had a certain place called Hades, Hades, that's the Greek we use for hell and even the grave. It's in the, in the New Testament Greek, even Hades. But over the portal of Hades, 
was a description. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And that's from an unbelieving society. Dead. Abandon all hope, who enter here. Because you're not going to return to a life of pleasure and self-satisfaction. On the other side, there is a rottenness and a devouring and the loved it's even worse than they themselves can imagine when you consider how God will what God will require to those who have lived in that far country and remained in that far country far from him in their rebellious and disobedient ways the deceitfulness of sin Enjoying it, enjoying it, and then a price to pay. So, and it seems that society never learns 6,000 years of history, and the ungodly never learn. We have to be taught the love. We would never have learned either. One has to be taught by the word and warned by the word and sometimes rebuked by the word. To continue in that way, brother, you're on the perishing way. Consider what is the end of it. You already may see consequences in your life and relationship. It's going to get worse. The way of sin and disobedience. So with this prodigal, and he finds himself to be in want in the end with this mighty famine after he had spent all, by this time his friend's Go elsewhere, of course. You have nothing more to offer us. And then the famine comes and intensifies it. And now you don't even have friends who might be able to help you. And he's in want. He's lack. He's impoverished. He's destitute. And he's so desperate that he joins himself to the citizen of the country. And the citizen of the country says, I can use your help. Minimum wage and less. Feed my swine. Feed the pigs in a far country. Of course, this is Jewish the lowest of the low now to feed the hogs, the unclean. And he's so alone he would fain have filled his belly with the husks of the swine that they ate, and no man gave to him. A citizen of the country who hired him wasn't showing any mercy. He was using this man to his own advantage, his own profit. Of course, barely starvation wages. He wanted to eat even what was tossed to the, to the hogs, to the the pigs, he was all alone, beloved, and realized there is no one in this whole world who cares for me and loves me anymore. Was that true? God be thanked. That was not true. There was a father at a gate looking down the road for his son to return. This father who was not God, he represents God, but all this father could do was pray and was powerless himself to bring his son to his senses and bring him back. But there is a father, beloved, who is not powerless to do so, who has power to bring his sons back to bring them to their senses. And that's Jehovah God. And he's in the parable. There's a famine, beloved. Who sent the famine? Not the father of the prodigal. But the heavenly father sent that famine, didn't he? Chastised him so he hit rock bottom to do what? to bring him to his senses, he comes to himself and realizes, I'm on the way of death, not pleasure and life. And if I continue to stay here, I perish far from home. God's love. And God's love, the love is never powerless. That's why whom God so loves come home. God's love is never frustrated. The God of the Arminian 
loves everybody and frustrated in the majority of cases because they never come home. They perish for all his love. But not the God of the apostles, the God of the scriptures, Jehovah God, whom he loves, he will bring to himself by hook or by crook in some way or the other. And he does to this prodigal as well as we must see. And he brings him to his senses. And that means, of course, when he comes to his senses, he realizes what he has done to himself. And he realizes his own rebellion, his own lack of gratitude, his own foolishness. And he sees himself for who he was and is honest about it and doesn't try to blame others and so on. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer and forgiveness. He comes to himself. The work of grace, you see, the work of grace. Apart from that work of grace, we don't know ourselves. We don't acknowledge ourselves, who we really are in ourselves. We always have excuses, and there's always maybe, maybe if I continue, something will improve. Maybe I can even escape condemnation. Maybe there is not even an everlasting abyss and, and hell. Maybe it, it's all just a, a myth. I sure hope so, and one, one continues in his foolishness. One has not yet come to reality and come to himself. But Grace, which is to say the operations of the Holy Spirit bring one to come to himself. And when he comes to himself, beloved, he repents. What constitutes repentance? What constitutes repentance, beloved, in the first place is conviction that I have sinned. Notice, I have sinned. Sin. Not simply I made a mistake, made some bad choices. I go back, I'd make some different choices, not make those mistakes. I have sinned. In other words, I have offended God. That's what I've done. And I did that. Not my upbringing made me do this and so on. I had a poor upbringing. That's my excuse in the end. No. One takes responsibilities for one's choices and decisions, and I have offended God. And notice heaven and earth, beloved, not simply heaven. Let's understand that. It's not simply I've sinned against God. But when we're repentant, we also recognize when we sinned against others and that our sinning against others is counted by God as sin against himself. Don't forget that. And let's consider, have I sinned against others? How have I done that? Forgive me, Lord, of that too. If I have wounded any soul this day, dear Lord, forgive that too. He knew, beloved, how he had wounded his father in this parable as he turned his back on him. Who knows about his mother and maybe others as well. Conviction that I have sinned with humility, see, because he says, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. I have a right to claim to nothing. I have a right only to be disinherited. And if thou, my father, did disinherit me, disinherited me, be no more than I deserve and of, I'm, of what I'm worthy. That kind of humility. If you only made me a servant. It would be more than I deserve. Conviction of sin, I am accountable, and humility concerning oneself and for what one lays claim. I cast myself simply on thy mercy, Lord and Father. But it doesn't end there. I'm sorry. Confess it. Ask thy mercy. 
he turns his back on the far country. That too, beloved. The resolution to leave sin behind. Not simply, I have done what's wrong and sorry for that, and then that I intend to continue in the, in the way, live with it. No, he leaves the far country. He turns. That's part of repentance too, the resolution to leave that which displeases God behind, to be done with it, Lord, and to pray for the grace that is so. Read your Lord's Supper form, the three parts of self-examination. What I've just mentioned is the third element of proper self-examination that has to do with proper repentance. But one more point with repentance, not simply also a resolution to leave it behind. There are those, you know, who are alcoholics, drunkards, and they realize what a mess they've made of life and relationships, and they're sorry for that, they say, and they're done with drink. And they live as one who has put drink, drink aside. And maybe they even join a church. But why? Because they don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be punished for my sin. No, beloved. True repentance is this as well, that I might be embraced by my Father, that I might know my Father's approval. Not simply I have a little religion because I don't want to go to the abyss, but I desire fellowship with God. That's my joy and my desire. That's what I, I missed. And now I stand as at the morning gates looking so that I might know that again. My father's love is life, more than life to me. That's, you understand, an essential element of true repentance. The father's love, the father's approval, his embrace. That's important to you, right? That's worth living for. But now this, he comes, and what's interesting is that he says he's going to say these things, and before he ever says it, his father sees him a great way off, compassion, runs and falls on his neck and kissed him. He never even got the words out of his mouth, proving, see, you don't have to repent don't have to make confession and you'll still be embraced and know God's love. There are those who would take the passage and try to twist it to say that and they would be sorely and grievously mistaken and wrenching God's word out of God's word. The focus of the parable is not on the explicit relationship between repentance, and forgiveness, although the relationship is there. I'll comment on that in just a moment. There are other parables, you understand, that focus on that. One should come to mind, that of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple, and the publican on his knees in the corner saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And he goes home justified having made the confession, be merciful to me, the sinner. And he goes home justified, knowing his sin is forgiven and the relationship of fellowship is restored. But even here, beloved, even here, that relationship is clear because the son does speak the words of repentance before he heads back to the father's house. Now, the father of the parable might not have known that, although he sees his son coming back. But you think God doesn't know that when one comes into his presence? Who worked this repentance? Who worked this repentance, beloved? God himself. And God certainly knows his own work. And this man comes back then as repentant. And as one who is on the way of repentance, the father embraces him. And the, fa and the son does express those words 
And the father reassures him, you are yet my son. So let's not have, using analogies from parables, have parables contradict parables. This parable does not contradict the parable, you know, of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple. It's in harmony with that. And this man comes as one who is repentant. And in the way of repentance, he's embraced. But the focus, beloved, in the end, isn't even the repentance, is it? The focus of the parable is the love of the Father. That abides. Even when that son was in the far country, the father loved that son and was yearning for and desiring his return. Christ teaching those publicans and sinners, those harlots concerning the God in whom they were interested in, in his abiding love. I didn't say approval. Because he loved them doesn't mean he approved of them. I've always loved my children. I didn't always approve of them. And they knew that, as I knew concerning my own father, for all his love, he didn't always approve, and there were consequences when he didn't approve. So with God. That's why there's even the famine. This young man experiences the consequences of his folly. But the Father's love abides. And that, beloved, is our hope, isn't it? Even the one whom we offend yet loves us. And we come in the name of not the older son here, but our, our elder brother, who is unlike this son's elder brother. Our elder brother speaks for us on the basis of what he has done, and we are received. That's Jehovah God. And that's why this is a beloved parable, isn't it, for us as sinners who look to our Father to receive us again and again and again. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us, like me. I once was lost, but I have been found. Was blind, but now I see. See what? What I deserve in myself. But the elder, our elder brother has done for us. And the abiding love of a father, beloved, which is life. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks for the gospel from the lips of our Lord Jesus and put on the printed page of the Holy Scriptures and given to us this day. Apply it to our hearts and may we respond in gratitude and in service in repentance and in faith. In Jesus' name.